We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the Media Giant Effect. And you know what? I've not had a lot of celebrity athletes on lately. I've been interviewing all celebrities and all types, and I miss the whole sports thing. But my guest today is a Buffalo Sabres Hall of Famer, even though I'm a Penguin fan, and an NHL legend, Don Luce. Don, thanks for stopping by. And, you know, it's amazing to look at hockey when you played to hockey today, right? Is it a totally different thing? Yeah, yeah, really. Uh, to a certain extent, the the rules have really changed, and and the game has changed. Uh, it's not quite the physical game it used to be, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a faster game. I th- I think that the, the players are talented, but I don't know if they have uh, the opportunity to do the stick handling and stuff that they did when back when the rules were different. Exactly. When the rules were different and you think about things in different ways. Now, did you always want to be a hockey player? I know you grew up in Canada. Was that your dream? I've talked to so many people that, you know, ended up doing something else from Canada. Everyone had the dream of play hockey. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was my, my dream from day one. And, uh, you know, I just fell in love with the game. Definitely. So let's talk about specifically, when did you know you were good enough to play in the NHL? How old were you? (laughs) When did I know, I guess, um, when I knew or when? When you knew, like, you know how we, like, as a uh, former professional athlete myself, I knew, and a college athlete in basketball, professional athlete in pro wrestling, I knew that I was good enough to get to the next level and next level after that. But in, in basketball, I knew I could play college basketball. I had a certain time period. When did you know you were good enough to play in the NHL? Well, I think that I always felt in myself that I um, probably when I was probably 16, 17 years old, I thought, you know, I thought I I had a a chance. I didn't know how much of a chance, but I really felt that I, if I dedicated myself, I could get there. And I did, (laughs) thankfully. 16, 17 years old. And in that time, that's when you guys are juniors and stuff, right? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I left home when I was 14 to play junior. Oh, my gosh. And so that was your only – that's the dream, play play in the NHL. So what team did you play for first in the NHL? Well, I was uh, drafted by the New York Rangers first. And uh, I spent two years with in their organization uh, with Emil Francis. Uh, great organization, uh, great people. Um Enjoyed my time there, but then I got traded to uh, the Detroit Red Wings, and I played a year there. And uh, basically, I asked to be traded because they're they going through a whole transition and stuff. And and uh, that's when Punch traded for me to go come to Buffalo and spent ten years in Buffalo. And so that's where you, if you were going to choose a jersey, it would be Buffalo Sabers all the way, right? Of the teams you played for. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no, you know, I had my most success there and, and we had really good teams that in that era. So it was a great, it was a great time and uh, great teammates. And it's great to be in a sports town like Buffalo, right. To play in Buffalo, especially at that time when you were playing, right. Cause there's not a lot of competition. There's not a lot of things in Buffalo to do. Right. <laughs> and well, well, the fans here are very passionate for both the uh, football team, the Bills, and and the Sabers, and and uh, even back when I played, we played in the old auditorium, which was uh, an older building, and and the fans were so close to us, and and 
the fans do make a difference. They, they, they can really help a team. They helped us. I know when I played that uh, they took the losses just as hard as we did. And they took the victories just as excited as we were. So, uh, you know, it, it was a great, great city. It is a great city to play in. Oh, absolutely. And I think that how big was it? Did you get excited on a home game when you knew you're, you're going to play in front of the home crowd? How did that pump you up a little bit to give you that extra kind of emphasis that to really perform well to the hometown? Well, well I think going into a game, you, you know, you'd get pumped up to it, but when you, when you get on the ice and the fans started cheering and, and, uh, you started even like, even in warm up, they were excited about it. And, and, that really helps you, you know, because uh, you felt when you scored that they felt it too, or, you know, and, and so it was a, I guess, I don't know how to describe how it would be to, to have that, all those people in the building on your side, you know, versus, you know, if you score on the road, no one cares. <laughs> exactly. You score on the road. It's like, and just that feeling. How the rush for fans, you know, I, I think about this, you know, I've done radio and television for 13 years, so I really don't have the back and forth. But when I was a professional wrestler and I played college basketball and then played also, you know, high school basketball, the, the rush of the crowd was such an amazing thing. There's no feeling like fans, right? The, the, the feel of the crowd. I kind of explain that to people. I've talked to, you know, other per performers and the, this, the crowd, the rush of a crowd, How's that feel when you score a goal in front of your fans and you hear that noise? Well, it's exhilarating. You just, you know, like it, it's it's so reinforcing and, and it makes you feel like, hey, I want to do this again. You know, I want to, I want, I want to hear that again. I want, I want those people yelling and cheering my name, and and be backing me up and and, you know, it, it really, really does help. You know, it, it like I say, it motivates you even though you're motivated going in as a professional, but with the home fans yelling and screaming and getting exciting, excited about the game and the goal you scored or the play you made. So, yeah, I, I think it's uh, underestimated the value of the fan. The value, that, so that's a great point, the value of the fan. I just think the rush of a crowd, I miss it. You know, I retired from professional wrestling at 29 in Bremen, Germany, did the WWE once, but I wrestled all over the world. And it's just, it's something that you miss. You, and I made a couple of comebacks, put the wrestling boots on. You see Ric Flair, he's still wrestling at 73. So I'm 50 and I, I don't, I could come back, but I don't, I think that uh, the other people say, don't do that. But ultimately <laughs> it's, that's why I can't wait to start speaking in front of crowds down the line and have that rush of the crowd. Even when I was speaking in front of 40 people or I was on, clubhouse speaking and i got to get that feedback it's just there's nothing like it and i'm sure you've gotten the opportunity life after hockey to speak to groups what's the difference of speaking to groups of people where you get the feedback you get the questions in, in front of pretty big groups compared to being in a team sport what's the difference i know you're you you definitely speak in front of groups and stuff and you really enjoy that experience what's better speaker or performer on 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 the ice well, for me, performer on the ice, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't consider myself a very gifted speaker. I, I, I like to do question and answers, but as far as uh, speaking in front of big crowds, I'm, I'm not 
very good at it, in my opinion. <laughs> you but do you enjoy it? Because I mean, you have had those opportunities. I'm sure after life after hockey to get those. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah I I enjoy it, and and you know I try and and uh, give my best uh, effort to try and make the the uh, talk informative and and uh, interesting. Now, Don, after life after hockey, did you know what you were going to do when you were going to retire? <laughs> well, uh, I I did. I I actually I uh, I had spent a stint in the minors. Uh, I was coaching general manager of the Pine Bridge Buck Pine Bridge Bucks, which was the Atlantic Coast League, which then became the East Coast Hockey League. Uh, and then I got I uh, hooked up with the Sabers, and I was in management for. 22 years with them doing scouting and, and, uh, drafting. Uh, I was director of player personnel. So I involved all the trades. And, uh, then I spent another 10 years with the Philadelphia Flyers and doing the same thing. Oh, so, wow. so yeah, I've been, been in hockey a long, a long time. And, uh, you know, uh, you think about things to do after, after you retire, but um, I think you know when it's in your blood, it's hard to get out, as you probably know as a wrestler. It's, it's, oh, I was I had to stop watching it, do certain <laughs> things. Now, what I'm doing now, Don, never retiring. I'm going to do it till the day I die, and that's yeah. talk show and getting to talk to amazing people like you, getting to help people grow brands like I get to do, speak in front of groups, all these things. It's I totally found what I love. And I can understand when you found what you love, you're going to stay in the uh, in the NHL for so long. So how long till you finally retired from being in the, the you know, player personnel, doing all these different types of things that you were doing in the NHL? When did you stop doing that? Uh, I think about 20, uh, 2016. 26, wow. So it's not still been that long away from that. How did you kind of recover from that? You know, if your knowledge base in the NHL, my gosh. I mean, and see, that's the Wikipedia doesn't do you justice. I, I told you I'm going to have to have it on a show just to talk about the days of going from the minor leagues in, you know, working as a coach and different things all the way to the NHL and that story. And to see the NHL in 2016 compared to when you first started, it's gotta be crazy. I mean, thinking that you got to see Mario, you got to see Wayne Gretzky, you got to see all these amazing players. But when you were in hockey, the NHL wasn't as popular as you saw that rise. I talked to Pierre LaRouche on my show before, and he kind of explained that difference. Look at the eighties jerseys right before the penguins went to black and gold to now and how hockey is now and how it's such a you know you gotta but it must have been hard walking away in 2016 right oh yeah absolutely you know it, it, it's tough uh but you know uh the job i was doing i i think i i became a little not stale but i i i kind of was looking forward to moving away from the game and, and spending time at home and spending time with my grandkids. And, and that's when I, uh, I started a, 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 a business. I do, uh, we have a synthetic ice center. It's just a small pad, but it keeps me busy. It's 24 feet by 55 and I do lessons and we do team, team training there. We're, 
we're outside in the summertime or all year all year long really because the ice is covered in a pavilion but it doesn't have any walls uh so it's outside all the time and and we do a lot of uh, individual stuff and a lot of team things that we do strength and conditioning as well because we're connected to a gym and stuff but that keeps me busy and and also uh you know i'm into mental training uh for athletes try and help athletes that are struggling or that need need to understand that the mental game is huge oh totally like, it, it, it's so underrated it's so under uh, mindsets taught. mindsets big in any any success in high level to be a high level performer in anything you need mindset right to get to that next level that makes you one out of a hundred people or you know that one percent there's just right. something you have to have well exactly and you you've probably seen it in, in your sport too there what you've probably played or wrestled against people that were maybe skilled as you are maybe better but they didn't make it and you and you know people say well why well because he did not have the mindset to go with his abilities and, and that's i why would say at that time i didn't don okay i didn't i was uh you know tryout so this is like wwe so the again you know it's not a real sport but I, yeah, no. I was ready to get close to sign with Vince, and I just didn't have the mindset that I wanted to continue doing it. And I walked away young. And I, thank goodness, because a lot of these guys haven't lived, and I want to live to your age or even 150. Yeah. So I don't want to, to to put myself in that danger uh, of just wrestling and just the, the the thing. But you're right. But I'm even talking about successful CEOs. I'm talking successful business owners. It's all about mindset to take you to that next level. If you don't have it, forget it. If you can't take the bumps in the road, what's happening in your life outside of the rink, outside of everything, and you can't put your focus into what you're doing at that time. How important is that, Don? Well, it's huge. You, you, you've got to, you've got to, I guess, come up, compartmentalize things. When you go to the rink to play, that's all that matters. You know, things going on in your life, uh, they're there and they'll be there after the game. But in that game, you've got to be focused on playing that game to the best of your ability. Otherwise, you're probably going to lose your job because somebody else is going to come and take it because they have that mindset, they have the drive, they're focused, they come to play every night. And, and, uh, you know, talent gets you so far, but you've got to be able to use the talent on a consistent basis to be a pro. So when you work with those athletes, what kind of, what age group are you working with the athlete part, not just the training part? Well, the athlete at the mental training, you know, we, we've done uh, young kids, 14 uh, year olds. You know, I think the, the big target area is high school kids, kids that are, um, you know, going into high school now becoming more competitive than they've ever played in whatever sport they're doing. And and then also the, the seniors and juniors are getting ready to hopefully get a scholarship or go on to play in college. I mean, and it's powerful because they all want to play in the NHL. And who would not want to work with Don Luce? Here's the reason why. Look at this. You've worked in the you play, you're a Buffalo Sabres Hall of Famer. You have worked in the NHL for X amount of years for different teams. 
you understand as a coach, you understand as a GM type person, you understand the behind the scenes of player personnel. You've seen, so, you've worked with, who would you say the top athletes you've worked with in your career that if we would remember today, especially for kids that are listening now that say, okay, I remember the Hall of Famers in the 80s, 90s, 2000, 2010. What hockey players have you brushed elbows with that you've worked with in some sort of way, coaching or played against? Well, you know, I played, I played when I was in Detroit, I played with Gordie Howe and he was my line mate. And, uh, I, I assisted on his last goal as a Red Wing. And so pretty proud of that. And, and, uh, you know, he's a tremendous athlete. Uh, you know, Gretzky, I played at the end of my career, I played oh year against him and, and, you know, you get to see these athletes, Mario Lemieux, you know, another great Bobby Orr, you know, it's funny when, when I was doing the drafting, we'd interview potential draft choices and stuff. And as you, as the years went by, you'd say, uh, you know, you'd make a comparison. Well, I think you you skate like Bobby Orr. Kids go, who? No, oh, Bobby, boy. You know, the, the generations change. And, you know, uh, the names that come quickly to my mind at that time, you know, or, or and how and. Mahavalij, uh, Esposito, guys like that, and now it's it's different. You know, they look at uh, like Mario Lemieux, Gretzky, you know, and the players today. You got McDavid, you got Stamkos, you, you know, you got tons of players. You got Forsberg, you got the Stastny's. You know, there's lots of players to to look up to. I think that you know, in my, my dealings, mostly it's been uh, a great player that maybe should be in the hall of fame is Alexander McGillney. Yeah. And, um, you know, he was a great athlete. He was a, he was a great, really, really great individual too. And, you know, so there's all kinds of guys that you, uh, brush up with and there's guys that you played against that you hated. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, but you, you think know, about the penguins, uh, you were to 2016. So you've seen a lot of the superstar penguins you've, been playing against meaning as in as a gm or working as a assistant gm or working in player personnel so you've seen them all right you've watched film on all of them the, the top stars in the oh yeah yep absolutely you know pittsburgh uh you know they had some great teams with mario and and uh yager and and coffee and and mark andre fleury you know and wow they're they are great teams to watch. They're exciting. And, uh, you know, we, uh, you always look forward to seeing them play. Exactly. So that's why I'm saying that if you're going to look for someone with mindset, Don, so this is reminds me of professional wrestling. Let me give you an example. I got trained by the late Charlie Fulton and he trained in the monster factory with the top stars. He knew exactly what the top stars in professional wrestling are able to talk about, things like that. If young people would just listen to you and hear some of your ideas, mindset, but also in, in strategy and what to do, they too could become a Hall of Famer like you are, Don. Where's the best place people can check you out and find info, information on you? Where can they go? <laughs> I guess Wikipedia. I guess I, I, I. You have a website for your training place, or or. Oh yeah, yeah, I do. It's uh, a five uh, five star. Well, it's Rocket Sports 
performanceandtraining.com. Okay. Well, Don, it was a pleasure having you on. And I'm definitely going to have you on back again, especially when we look at sort of things. We could talk NHL. I have been so busy with my businesses that it's business. It's just like, oh, my gosh. I don't watch sports as much as I did when I was a kid. But again, I have my memories of the NHL, the Stanley Cups with the Penguins. And to hear and speak to a legend like you is an honor. So thanks for stopping by. Well, thank you. And Neil, I think you're doing a great job. I think that the, the people out there, they get, get a chance, opportunity to help people. And it, it, it's really a wonderful thing that you do. Thank I you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show, Media Giant Effect, and Celebrity Interviews Live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? This is exactly the kind of a topic you like to talk about, isn't it? Oh, I really do. I mean, I'm so into innovation, growth, technology, you know, making America its amazing self again. I'm just, I'm all about that. Yes, and my guest today is Colonel John Mills. He's going to talk about innovation race. Colonel Mills, thank you for your service again. And uh, this is such an honor to have you on the show today. Yeah, thank you, uh, uh, Neil and Greg. An honor to be with you likewise. Thank you very much. All right, Greg, go ahead and hit him off with this first question. Well, that's great. Well, it's it's a real pleasure and honor to meet you, sir. I appreciate it. And thank you for your service. Um, so what prompted you to jump in and create this innovation race? Uh, well, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, it, 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 uh, I was invited to uh, participate uh, in, in the film uh, by uh, Luke, and uh, uh, it's, it's his film, uh, but I, I was one of uh, uh, an August set of characters uh, and, and in, the, in, the, uh, in the movie. And uh, what's, uh, and simultaneously, I have, a, I, have a, I have a book out right now called uh, The Nation Will Follow that's actually very closely related. But I mean, the simple bottom line on innovation race is in 2011, we had a new law passed. And I was at the time in the uh, Office of Sector Defense working on a, a parallel cyber piece of legislation. But the innovation uh, one was supposed to improve the patent system. Uh, but as we've learned from the 2002 Helping Americans Vote Act or the Reflation Inflation Reduction Act, never, ever, ever, ever trust a nice sounding piece of legislation. This was the uh, essentially the America Innovate Act uh, from 2011. And it took our system, which is it's in the Constitution. A lot of Americans don't realize that. Our, our, our patent system is in the Constitution. And it took our patent system, which maybe wasn't perfect, maybe needed some tweaks, and essentially uh, uh, gutted it, created a essentially an internal uh, uh, legal panel and court. Uh, I, I should use the term court. Where, whereby big tech could attack and assail relentlessly over and over again awarded patents. Well, what's the outcome when that happens? Why get a patent? Uh, so American innovation is dropping with the American Innovates Act. Uh, and who benefits? China. China. What did China do? China took our existing system and ran with it. Uh, uh, instead, we shot ourselves many times in the foot and uh, everybody's looking around going, yeah, so what, big deal, who cares? Uh, but that was part of the initial marriage of big tech 
and the early Obama administration as they were getting to know each other. And it was it's, it's a it's a very bad piece of legislation. It's hurt us very badly when it comes to uh, innovation in, in all, all worlds, but especially in the big tech world. Well, and, you know, you bring up big tech and you bring up, you know, China and you bring up, you know, scooping up IP and all of that stuff. And it makes me think, you know, where do we fit uh, in America now up against, you know, some of the state actors that are out there like China and so forth um, in terms of security, you know, protection, cybersecurity for us and our citizens? Well, I mean, first and foremost, as we're now learning through the Twitter leaks and uh, a lot of my personal involvement, and uh, and that's why I, I also put out the uh, the parallel book, uh, The Nation Will Follow, um, is because I, I, I realized uh, the marriage of big tech and big government is uh, unlawful, and it is very bad. Um, it's bad for all Americans, as we're learning in the Twitter leaks, uh, this uh Foreign Influence Board. Uh, I, I, I know some of these national security laws pretty well, and uh, I think it is just outrageous that an internal government body, uh, and it was Elvis Chan, that's his name, uh, FBI agent Elvis Chan, who revealed this in, in, in testimony uh, in the uh, 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 Missouri and Louisiana cases uh, uh, about this topic and Elvis Chan, uh, a stand now we, now it's fact. We know, uh, that from a standing official, uh, there was a body. It's, it's, it seems to all, everybody's pointing at this foreign influence board, which, Hey, I mean, I was part of a number of boards and, and task forces. Uh, you gotta have a charter. You gotta have a legal foundation. Uh, this is out of control. This is insanity. And uh, so the, the big problem with the patent system, we destroyed it. That was one of the early casualties of the marriage of big tech and the Obama Biden team. And um, people are just not getting patents or they're actually going to China. Now, can you actually enforce a patent uh, if it's done through China? I, I think that's that's very sketchy in itself. But the reality is China is essentially surpassing America in patents. We had a system not perfect shot it, you know, destroyed it. Um, and China took our system and ran with it. Mm. What, wow. what do you think is the reason they decided to go this route, the administration? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, uh, as we've learned in other situations, uh, legislators do not read their legislation. Uh, usually it's a young 20 something year old, which I have nothing against young 20 something year olds. But a lot of times they don't have enough life experiences. They don't oftentimes they can add language, but they, add, they rarely know how to cross reference it or know where it's duplicated or know where it steps on other language. Um, this is where you get this the 4000 page omnibus bills. Um, so a lot of it is the legislators fault. Uh, they don't know their legislation. They don't read it. They don't understand it. And this is where the citizen has to hold our legislators accountable, which is uh, you have to secure your county. It all begins with our county. But we're getting bad legislation, bad legislators. And, and the Obama, this was the early days of the Obama-Biden team going, hey, we like this big tech thing. And the marriage took place. And uh, America is now under oppression from this big tech, big government collusion and this was one of the first steps was the 2011 American Innovates Act. And this, this led to the situation we're in today. It's, it's absolutely horrendous. Now we have government officials act
actively working against Americans in addition to uh, attacking awarded patents, uh, uh, decrementing them, uh, ripping them, uh, uh, degrading them to, to the point why even have a, an awarded patent. An awarded patent is gold. It used to be gold. Mm. Now it can be attacked and repealed, essentially. You know, I saw some excerpts that you had um, that came across uh, my desk. You, you mentioned deep state, global elite. Is is there an equal force for good on our side? You know, maybe some people mention white hats. Is, does such a thing exist? Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I get a lot of criticism for this and a lot of flack, but there are white hats inside of government. I personally know it, even though I'm retired from government, both uniform and civilian. I get a lot of grief for it. They need support. They need direction. They need guidance. Um, but the problem is once you reach what's in the civilian world, what's called the senior executive level, and uh, in the uniform military, the equivalent would be the general officers, the admirals, um, for the most part, we lose most of, because uh, of, they, they become, uh, they, see, they see clearly that they gain benefit and especially when they retire and move on by uh, feeding and growing the, the deep state. There is a deep state. And uh, that's where in my, in my book, The Nation Will Follow, thenationwillfollow.com, I outlined because I realized I was right in the middle of the spying on candidate and then President Trump and my pathway to the Durham investigation, outing and fingering a number of folks um, and continuing having to upgrade uh, with the recent Twitter releases. I have to update my statements because I've, you know, it's corroborated even more of what I, I, I was aware of. And so the, we, we have to fight at our county level, secure our county. Uh, it's, it's Fulton, it's Maricopa that's messing everything up, but there are white hats. Um, they need support. Hmm. Will the support ever happen again? Or do you feel that big state and government are just getting too, too in control now? Well, the, the lawsuits, uh, 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 this is where we have to get states uh, under control. And you get states under control by securing your county. <laughs> and then you secure more counties and then you dominate a state. This is, this is Florida. This is Texas. Uh, even uh, the Republicans did well in the California elections because they learned, guess what? Ballot harvesting is legal. Get over it and either lose or learn how to ballot harvest. It's legal. Um, so, yes, we can win and we, we have to fight back. And uh, the Missouri and Louisiana lawsuits are awesome because they've, they've now a, a standing federal official in sworn testimony said, yeah, yes. Absolutely. We, we had an internal vetting organization and body, uh, I, and he was the lead person to, for going to, going to Twitter and social media and saying, censor these Americans. That's, that's on top mm. of what the censoring was already going on. So we have to fight through lawsuits, through securing counties to build upon that. Success breeds success. Uh, you know, there's only a few counties that are, caught, that are throwing the whole country and we need Georgia and Arizona to, to get Maricopa and Fulton under control. Pennsylvania, it's, it's Philadelphia. All right. Now, Greg has a question. He asks all his successful guests. Well, Go before ahead. I ask that one, Neil, I've got, I've got another one to quick okay. follow. up. You know, um, do, do you feel the Brunson case up at the Supreme Court? Oh, yeah. Is it a chance to get somewhere? 
Yeah, the Brunson case is brilliant. Uh, and and hats off, kudos to the Brunson brothers. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, this is this is an exemplar of citizen action that is getting getting traction all the way. And you know, I in my own county in Prince William County, we are duking it out. We work closely with Loudoun County. You know, Loud, you know the Loudoun County parents are are up in arms. Uh, um, and I did my own court. It's very simple to do a court filing and petition the court for a court hearing. It's actually very simple. 80 bucks. Okay. 80 bucks. And I do a court. Everybody goes, oh, I need a lawyer. No, you do not need a lawyer. A lawyer will oftentimes screw it up for you. You bring it up, bring a lawyer in at the last moment when you teed up the shot perfectly. But a lot, the, the Brunson case is brilliant. The, the hat's off. That's brilliant. But I've, I've done lawsuits in my own county. Uh, got dismissed, but I also got also very key evidence into uh, court uh, into into testimony, which is important to build precedence and build evidence. So you could point back to a case might have been dismissed, but very important evidence was was formally submitted. So citizens, do it. Don't wait for a lawyer. Great, thank you. All right, Greg. Now that final question, yours. Oh yeah, sure, no problem at all. You know, so I appreciate it uh, so much. Um, so quick question, and I'll I'll say in life and in business. Uh, now that you're doing publishing and movies and all that stuff, um, what's the most important thing that you feel that you've learned? You know, I spent almost forty years facing outward, facing the external threat. The country was stolen behind my back because I forgot about the county and the seven centers of gravity that are common to all 3,300 roughly county and county equivalents. I was, and, and many Americans, same thing. They're facing outward. They're facing to D.C. Okay, we do need people facing D.C. and, and hammering the D.C. swamp culture, but it all the deep state stands upon the shoulders of our county. We have to remember it's not exciting. It's not sexy. Everybody go to, oh my gosh, I, I mean, I have to go to a county council meeting. I have to go to school board meeting. Yes, yes, you do. And I learned it. It was a hard lesson for me. I thought I knew, I thought I knew what I was doing. I realized stolen right in front of, in front of me in my county. Okay. And Innovation Race will be available as a documentary in January, right? And that is correct in January that comes out. And is your book already out? Where can we get people to check out your book? Oh, uh, thank you uh, uh, so, so much, Neil. Appreciate that. Uh, so Innovation Race is, is I, I go to innovationrace.com, uh, the Innovation Race. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful movie to understand uh, how we basically took a, a good system and really messed it up. The book is the nation will follow.com. The nation will follow.com. Um, me uh, uh, realizing colleagues were spying on candidate and then president Trump getting in front of the Durham investigation. And then it presents an action plan to uh, how to dominate our counties. And the preface is written by uh, Stephen K. Bannon. All right. Fantastic. Well, we appreciate you coming by. Uh, it was a, a lot of fun. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. And everyone needs to check out your book. And the, and the movie. Oh, th All right, take care. Thank you, Neil and Greg. It's an honor to be with it. you. Thank you. You're welcome. You're listening and watching Celebrity Interviews live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Guys, take care. We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the Media Giant Effect. And I'm excited about uh, my new segment. It's called CEO Spotlight. And my guest today is the CEO 
of end to end to end. And I'm excited to welcome Robert Stewart. Robert, thanks for stopping by, man. How are you? you? And, you know, it's always interesting to listen to entrepreneurs, CEOs, and see if all their lives they were looking at this is what they wanted to do in life. Is this (laughs) what you wanted to do growing up? You know what? I would be shocked to find out that that would, that majority of people say what they're doing now is what they dreamed of doing when they were a kid. Now, they may be related. Don't get me wrong. They may be related in regard to what their passion is or, or their gifts. I think it's always going to line up with that. But as far as ideally, no, not even close. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. But it's a, it's a good place to be. It's it's definitely a good place, and you just never think about when you go and do it. So, growing up, what did you want to do? Because I, I mean, I remember I wanted to be either a professional athlete, which I got the opportunity to be, and also I wanted to be like a sportscaster and a talk show host. Well, I ended up with both of those things, but they kind of went in different directions. And finally, where I am today, I never would have said this is exactly what's mapping out. I wanted to play the NBA because I'm a legitimate 6'10. And I hey. wanted to be and I wanted to be like a sportscaster, you know, like one of the, the major TV networks for sports. So those were the two like huge loves of mine. And it kind of ended up being a little bit of a different path. What was your, what, what were your likes yeah, growing up? Yeah. That's true. I, I, I get that. And I, I'll have to, this might take a long time to explain, but uh, to how it lines up. But I, when I was a kid, I did, I played sports. You know, my family comes from a family of athletes, also a family of musicians. And wow. so at 11, I took up playing the trumpet and I became a professional musician. And played trumpet, played jazz trumpet, played in big bands, played on you know albums and and uh, and a number of commercials, and did a lot of studio work, and and that was something I loved doing. I studied it in school and in college, and had a great time. And uh, and so I left school uh, early to actually play music. I changed my major to marketing, but didn't finish just because I wanted to go on the road and play music because that was what I was going to do. Well, that lasted about, you know, 30 seconds or so, but I still played locally and grew up in uh, in the Kansas City area and played around there and just really enjoyed and still enjoy playing music, actually. But um, went back to school sometime in between there and got a degree in, 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 in business and really started using some of those skills of, I would say, uh, improvisation in, in an entrepreneurial environment, because I think that's what you do. Right. Uh, in this environment. So so maybe they're related, maybe they're not, but I think creativity is part of the game. And I, I think that's the centerpiece of music at its core. Yeah, you figure it out. Exactly. That's creativity, especially if you look at the creativity as a teacher, as I'm a former teacher, the creativity as a professional wrestler, to understand how you put that creativity together just to tell a story. And storytelling is one of the biggest things. And in music, it's storytelling because you have the beginning of a song to the end of the song and the story throughout that process. And I think entrepreneurship has to be a story as well, especially talking about your company and that brand story. So how did this all start for you there? Well, you know, I, uh, I when I got out of school and and uh, kind of still, I mean, music's always going to be a part of me, right? It's always going to be a hobby. But I went on to, to learn um, with a very interesting gentleman. His name is Alan Boyer, who lived in Kansas City. And it turned out Alan didn't live very far from me. He studied with, with Deming 
And Deming was kind of the father of the Six Sigma concept. Uh, really, it, it, it was total quality management back in that day. And Alan was an older gentleman, but he kind of took me under his wing and really mentored me in the ways of Six Sigma. He was the Yoda, <laughs> you know, and I became a consultant. Uh, in, in that space, just really looking at process improvement. And it just became a passion of mine that really uh, the interest in how do you improve processes and, and discover where dollars where they didn't exist before. And in doing that, I got a consulting gig with a company in California that was a, they, they did scrap. They scrapped uh, copper, copper that came out of the ground from the Verizons and AT&Ts of the world that they were upgrading some systems. And they were pretty antiquated. I, I noticed they were very antiquated in their, in their processes, but they didn't really uh, think it was important to listen to the, the kind of new ways of doing things. And I mean, we kind of parted ways, but in that industry, I, I uh, discovered an opportunity to help uh, a company called Sprint uh, dismantle the Nextel network oh, and, wow. and build a process for uh, reverse logistics and uh, recycling the equipment that came out of those sites. So I, I was able to land a contract with a company called Black & Veatch out of Kansas City to assist Sprint for New York and New Jersey, which was the most difficult areas that they had. Oh, yeah. And I developed a process to manage the reverse logistics from some of those tall buildings and rooftops in New York and New Jersey and bring them to a cross dock and bring them all the way back to where we were shredding them and sorting them and selling them back on the London Metal Exchange so that we could actually drive the dollars out of the metals that came out of that equipment. And I developed that entire process. We put it in place on the East Coast and ended up doing um, all the way down through Washington and, and Virginia and did a, did a lot of work there. And that really started my journey into the path of technology is uh, really dismantling uh, old cell sites. And so starting by working for other people, you learned, and then as a consultant, you learned, so that I got to do this myself. So tell me uh, how- To a certain degree, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it led me to, a, to asking questions um, in, in a space that I found that was antiquated in many, many ways. And we developed some processes and some technology that helped us to track that equipment while it was in the field all the way back to its reclamation point. And we were able to track that equipment in ways that would allow for reports and information that was not gathered at the time. This was 10 years ago or so. And at the, at the, the end result was is that you know, we were able to deliver at a high level and we were able to deliver with efficiency and improved efficiency allowed me to start making a profit. And that was the beginning of me understanding the area of communication, process improvement, field management, and, and uh, continuous process improvement was what became our game. Yeah. So that's where now when people ask you, well, tell us about your company, that's the hardest thing, right? Because ultimately, it's so much of a logistics type of thing that only certain people can understand it, right? Is that the hard thing? Like, people, you know, you ask that aren't in this industry. What do you do and what does your company do? How would yeah. you say that to them? Because it's the thing, you know, when you talk about breaking down specific things that are niche, that, hey, they work in specific industries and then yeah. explain it to other people, especially when it's not a B to C, it's a B to B company. Explain yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, um, that's our origin story. I mean, it, it's, it's, it may be a little more complex and more detailed than we ever want to think about. 
But um, as far as our company, we're project management as a service. And we focus our attention on building out private 5G. So the question is like, what is private 5G, right? right. Everybody says, well, 5G is, makes your phone work faster. And does this. well, 5G right. was designed really for biz, a business footprint, like a college campus or a hospital campus or, you know, an industrial campus to be able to um, execute um, transactions and, and, act, and, and activity faster, robotics and, and a number of things much faster. And it's able to communicate at light speed with another campus that could be somewhere else in the world or across the country. So we help to build out that for our communications organizations like the AT&T's, Verizon's, T-Mobile's of the world. And that's really our focus of business. We manage those projects to help build out private 5G. And 5G's just gone blown up in the last couple of years, right? And what's the difference between private 5G and using one of the providers for 5G? Well, private 5G is, is, you know, it's always going to be always going to be administered by one of the providers, right? But what they're able to do is, is actually cover a specific footprint, geographic area, like a campus. And, and as soon as you get into that space, instead of moving on to their Wi-Fi, you automatically move into their 5G system. Mm. That 5G system can communicate with another one. So, you know, one of the fictitious, I will say, I won't say fictitious, but just one of the dreams is that I could actually perform one campus, a hospital campus, perform surgery in New York on a patient in Los Angeles. Both campuses are on 5G and there's no there's no lag time. Lag time because the Internet speed is one of the most important things like you can't be down like I when I'm traveling and I have two hotspots change up from, you know, different hotspots based on specifically where I'm at. And it's all, I always have to have fast moving internet, fast Wi-Fi. If you don't have that, especially with Zoom and different things, you're talking about surgery in one place and people have to see it from the next and be able to, you can't have anything lag. No, no, we call it latency and you can, there's, and you can't have any latency. Now, you know, obviously that's not, you know, we got a lot of things going on out here, uh, connected cars, uh, IOT, which is the Internet of Things, where we have sensors on everything from stoplights to, to you know, uh, uh, smart cars to a number of other things. And being able to connect 5G from, from footprint to footprint is becoming more and more important. And it's not as it's not as as is an. It's not in as many, in many places as you might think right now. It's in different spots, but it, it's the idea of being able to connect quickly and in a specific geographic area, particularly if you're going to remain in that area for certain kinds of activities, whether it's engineering activity or testing or a number of other things that could take place. So the, pro- the project management you do is then do it with the major provider and work one-on-one with that provider and that big vertical market like hospitals yes. big, big big municipalities that just have never gotten 5g and work right. with them to make it connect because people think oh 5g is never coming to me right we know that it, I, I don't even know the map of 5g now it's still not that large is it for the united States? no i mean we'll say 5g you can get it in spots on with your phone but the real effective nature of 5g is being able to use it in an industrial like environment 
right? And and having that stationary footprint that always act is always active. There are no, there's no latency, there's no crossover, there's no nothing, and it's just it's constant. That's where you know the real value starts to come in. So we always think of, of Wi-Fi and, and cell phone connectivity because it's mobile and you can drive from one part of the state to the other and always have it. That's not the greatest value of it. The greatest value is that speed in that in that um, very focused footprint, geographic footprint that allows you to start setting up systems that rely on it with no latency and allow the speed of robotics and communication and engineering and you know connected components to work together in a robotic-like environment. All right, where's people can work is the best place people. This is a great thing that's new. I mean, I've been educated by you completely on this interview, uh, but where is the best place people can find information on end-to-end solutions? End-to-end solutions, go, uh, go end-to-end.com. Go end-to-end.com. The story I just told you about, um, you know, having multiple vendors in, in, in New York and New Jersey, there's an origin story on that, which is a... An, a um, an animated version of that origin story. And it's it's only a minute and 23 seconds long and it kind of tells you how we got started. And then it talks a little bit about um, the software we use to make sure that we have a centralized database and but, an, but a, a decentralized environment where things get done, right? And so if you can imagine being able to work in multiple geographic areas, but be able to collect the data on what's being done and control the environment for continuous process improvement so that you sustain quality, sustain the budget, sustain the timing of delivery. That's how we're able to uh, provide project management as a service because we are a very decentralized environment. COVID's taught us that, right? And yeah. People work from home. People work That's from- That's what I wish we can continue to be. Right. I mean, well, yeah, that's true. We that's need true. to have the ability to connect anywhere. And, you know, the future of work, especially if we're going we're going to outer space. We better get used to the future of work to be. Not at that's home. true. Yeah, that's true. I, I think I think like this, though, I think that, that there's some real value in working in a decentralized environment. Right. Uh, and I love that. I, I think that you cannot underestimate the power of being face to face. Yeah. Some things you you some things you just cannot get done, i.e. relationship, which when I first started in business, uh, that the idea of there's only thing one thing you need, and that is relationships. You protect right. relationships at all costs, that business will come. And and to me, that's that's key, right? Is is relationship. And I don't think that uh, well, I don't. Uh, I got I got married in 1942, you know, a long time ago, and they didn't have internet. So, but I didn't I wouldn't have asked my wife to marry me over the phone either, right? And so so the point is some things can only be done face to face. Exactly. Well, we appreciate it, Robert. It was great information. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. good stuff, man. I, I take uh, it. I You're listening it. and watching the Neil Haley show. We'll be back in just a we're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the Media Giant Effect. And I'm excited to welcome the CEO of Super Human Prospecting, Ryan Paris. Ryan, thanks for calling and, and joining the show. And you know what? When I think about specifically enough prospecting, I think it's the biggest thing in 2023 challenges. There's two challenges meeting every business owner. Social media management, where they literally don't have people to find to do it. And then people who do prospect so that their marketing is stuck because they don't have get the leads. And once they do get the leads, they're not prospecting those leads in the pipeline. Would you agree, Ryan? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's all about effort and output and doing it in a quality way so that it generates results. So how did you get started in this? Are you a sales guy to start with? Is that kind of your background? Yeah, I was... Uh, I was a sales guy, you know, you know, it's funny, like uh, my, my original background, um, I grew up, uh, you know, on eBay and some of those like emerging platforms. And I was always just wheeling and dealing, you know, I was trying to figure out how to sell like a race car helmet or like a, like my mom's toaster, you know, that she would get really pissed at me for, <laughs> but I wanted to figure out how to create messaging that would connect with people. And so that's originally kind of some of the, the roots of my sales. And I got into sales right after college and really saw that my, my ability to, to talk to strangers, um, it just came natural. But I got taught this way, you know, that was outdated, aggressive, kind of used car salesman type. Yeah. And I wanted to translate that to the 21st century when I started my business. And, and that's where a lot of the ideas came from. It was a passion for selling and doing it in a way that made it a good experience for the folks that we were talking to, you know, but also yielded results. So you think about specifically enough the used car salesman, the days of selling and churning and burning just doesn't work anymore. The churn burn ticks people off and you lose a lot of customers through churning and burning, right? And not yeah, and absolutely. getting them upset, right? It's about, it's, it's a like for like society now. You can't go ahead and think, I'm going to go bother all these people with telemarketers and different things like that and not provide value and think that you're going to continue to build your customer base. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and one of the things that we preach here is we have this this philosophy that applies to more than just sales, but specifically with sales, it's uh, we have this H to H methodology or human to human. And the, and the idea is that we are trying to maximize performance without ever losing trust with the people that we're speaking with, whether that's internal team members or just, you know, prospects that we're that we're reaching out to. So what that basically means and, you know, sales and, and practical application is that when we are engaging with someone, obviously we want to increase our and speed up our sales cycle, but that doesn't always come to fruition because they might not be ready. So we have to back off, allow them to breathe, you know, and, and maybe set them into a nurture campaign and just build that relationship. And then that can come back to us later. If we're always focused on the appointment, we're always focused on the now, you know, we can cut those relationships short and, you know, churn people out, as you say, without really having that nurturing aspect that can uh, bear fruit later. We're seeing this on LinkedIn right now, where people are sending, they created these drip campaigns when ultimately LinkedIn was not meant to be a drip campaign in that way, where you're literally using AI to have conversations with people and the relationship is not developing. And then people lose trust of why that person next to them have done that. It does work, but ultimately I think it's a churn burn thing too. So tell us specifically about what makes you guys different. And especially I guess being able to get a sales team for somebody is huge because a lot of times they can't afford it. And then when they hire telemarketers and sometimes they're overseas as well, they really tick off the potential customer or client. Absolutely. Well, first of all, all of our team members are, are U.S. based. You know, they have the American accent. They're either college educated or have prior sales experience. They have the ability to articulate and really have a, a sales development conversation with somebody. And so I think that's number one. Number, number two is that we have our own cold calling uh, and script methodology that our whole entire team is trained on. They have to go through a video course, training tests, role plays, those types of things in order to go out and speak to prospects 
so that we know that there's quality conversation going on. And lastly, it would be, you know, our process. We've been doing this for six years now. Our whole, our whole uh, outsourcing service is automated so we can upload data, train our team through the scripts we write and, and the sales and product training, get them calling. Once there's leads, they can, you know, be zapped right into any CRM or into email, into a, a reporting tool that makes it really easy to view the analytics, to get feedback and, and continuously improve. And you're definitely a business to business company, right? What kind of business do you work with? Yeah, we're primarily business to business. About 95% is B2B. We do have some uh, B2C. You know, we work in the remodeling space a little bit uh, with some lead generation there. Uh, but we work all over the place. Let's say our top companies we work with or industries we work with right now are SaaS, manufacturing, commercial insurance, and, and marketing. Uh, but we also work with a wide range of other types of services. Uh, we work with cannabis. You know, we've worked in some distribution, you know, e-commerce. Uh, and it's really about... You know, one of the interesting things about that question is sometimes when we have a lot of experience or work with companies that similar companies that come to us, it can get harder because that means the market is a bit more saturated. We're kind of like a, a micro sample of the marketplace. But when we get something that's unique, right? Like one time this summer, um, we had we had gotten a, a company who they provide power generators to farm equipment retailers. Okay. It was like the weirdest thing ever. And that we blew it out of the park. It's like absolutely crushed that. And they're still with us today, you know, but it's like, we had never done anything like that before. So it's what like, do you think you is know, the best way like you guys and you're without giving away your secret sauce and prospecting, but I think everyone ha has tried every prospecting method in the world. But I think that you do is you don't want it to be like the used car salesman thing. Are, are you using a lot of leads from databases? Are you taking leads from their databases? Or are you doing a mixture of all to go out and call places? So because we're a service, you know, we're, we're open and flexible. We can kind of customize the projects and campaigns for our clients. So they, if they provide us a list, uh, we can work with that and we'll upload it through our compliance software so that we know that we're all you know, following the DNC and, and the telemarketing sales rule, but we can also develop lead lists as well. We have a full-time team of four market researchers that custom curate lists every single month using multiple sources. So there's a lot the of ways lists that we can are more powerful than ultimately trusting specifically enough, just, you know, creating these lists, seeing who the decision makers are and always updating it. Cause you can have a database that's just dead right? Dead in the water or use LinkedIn and tick people off because how important are LinkedIn? I, I'm If you do, guys do use uh, a program, like I said, with uh, LinkedIn uh, <laughs> uh, drip campaigns, I, I just, I've talked to so many clients say they don't like it at all, but I don't know if you utilize that or not in your services. I apologize. Yeah. If you, yeah. No, we, we offer some of that, but primarily we're doing calling and emailing. I mean, we can do that as an ancillary service, but our expertise is calling, but, you know, and, and email prospecting. So that's something that we do offer as a, as a service, but not as many folks are choosing that these days. We're really the, the calling and emailing is our expertise. Because that's what works best business to business, because you yeah, got to get to the decision maker. You got to be able to warm them up before you make the call. This is the problem. And, and, if you make the call without warming them up, they're going to say, Give me your contact information, emailing. So I worked uh, working for a company involving marketing with a company called Lensec. And I learned firsthand having to go back uh, to do it, making those calls 
as an inside sales rep. And I saw as a director of inside sales for North America, I learned, man, if you don't know how to get through the door, you're in trouble and you better warm them up so they understand your product or service, or you're going to spend so much time explaining who you are, where you're not going to say, hey, I just got your email. I saw what you're about. Can I have a demo? Right. That's the process of warming people up before calling. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and to your point earlier, you know, like the, the, the list and data is is really important because when we reach out to these folks, you know, sometimes it is some, someone else in a new position and we have to ask like which department or who's in charge of a certain area. And we update that information as we go and we make